Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, I have uh, Dr. Jack Regan, CEO of Lexagene, and we're going to talk about uh, their patented automated pathogen detection system called MyQ Lab, but we'll get into that shortly. So, uh, Jack, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me. If you would, just tell me a little bit, a little bit about your background and how you came to be uh, CEO of Lexagene. Yeah, so I started doing my doctoral studies on influenza, and I naturally got interested in, you know, viruses and the impact they have and, you know, their potential for causing a pandemic. Uh, after graduate school, I went on to actually got recruited to join a national laboratory, Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And while there, I got involved with a group of scientists and engineers who were developing uh, fully automated instruments to detect, you know, bio-threat agents that a bioterrorist might choose to, you know, put into a weapon and also just typical respiratory uh, viruses. And so I think I sort of interested in automation. And while at the National Lab, I invented the technology that Lexington has now commercialized. It's the intention of the technology, the MyQ. Uh, what's it about? How does it work? Yeah, so, so quickly, I think first to understand that it's a little bit, it's important to go back and look at the former instrument that I was working on at the National Lab. And so we had been funded by the Department of Homeland Security to develop instruments to better protect the homeland, if you will, against a bioterrorist attack. And so the engineers I got working with had developed a system that effectively looks to analyze the air in different high-risk areas that would be prime targets for bioterrorists, such as a transit station, like a train station, or a concert hall, or Congress, or something of that nature, where bioterrorists might view it as a prime target. So the systems sort of analyze the air and look for anthrax, smallpox, plague, things of this nature. And so 
we developed this technology, the Department of Homeland Security, they loved it, they brought it into their BioWatch program, but the reality was it had some weaknesses, and I felt like those weaknesses needed to be addressed to make a system better suited for broader applicability across other markets, not just for bio threats. And so that set me on the path of Lectogene. And the system we have now developed and have begun commercializing is designed to be applied to multiple different markets. Uh, right now, we're not focused on a bio threat, but surprisingly, just yesterday, a press release came out indicating that we've engaged the Army in doing some anthrax and, um, small, uh, and, and plague testing. Uh, but that aside, you know, our, our primary market is in veterinary diagnostics. Um, so our system is designed to be placed, you know, where the sample is. And so we call it point of need. And the reason why we say point of need and not point of care is because there are many situations where you want to do effectively genetic testing for contaminants, but there's not a sick person or a sick animal in the equation. Uh, a perfect example would, would be the uh, biopharmaceutical space. And so our system is designed to take a very complex chemistry and make it easy to automate. And so our system receives effectively a liquid sample. Uh, that sample could be urine. It could be a swab from a contaminated uh, or infected wound. It could be a bioreactor sample that wants to be screened for particular contaminants. Uh, it could be blood, cerebral spinal fluid, what have you. And we process that sample, we purify the genetic material from that sample, and we screen for different targets of interest, whether they are pathogens or whether they are the genes that confer resistance to like antimicrobial therapies. And so our system is very uh, flexible, if you will, because it can be used for many different targets as well as many different applications. How does it work? Is this like a PCR amplification type test or what's the mechanics of the test like? It is. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is important for your listeners to, uh, I think, get a better appreciation for is in the realm of diagnostics, there are many different ways to do uh, a diagnostic. We have chosen a technology that really, if you will, marries two gold standard chemistries. And so what our system does is it takes in that liquid sample. And the first thing it does is it concentrates the, the bacteria on a solid phase membrane. And then we pulverize the sample. Uh, and the reason why it's important to pulverize is not all samples um, are easily amplified by genetic amplification without first purifying the genetic material. For example, you know, there are certain gram-positive bacteria that have a cell wall to them. And unless you break apart the cell wall and sort of get to the genetic code inside, you will have a poor sensitivity. And so what we do in our system is we do a combination of a chemical and a mechanical lysis to allow us to break apart gram-positive bacteria, spores, different fungi, which are also hard to break. Um, and so we go through a very rigorous, high-quality, what's called sample prep. And sample prep is just sort of jargon for the field for describing the chemical and mechanical process of extracting and purifying genetic material. Well, what, so, what do you need to extract if you're looking at bacteria versus virus versus fungi, et cetera? Great question, because let me sort of bring, I think, you know, something that a lot of your listeners are, are certainly concerned about, and that coronavirus is the story. You know, coronavirus is what we call an envelope virus, uh, and it also, you know, the sample is typically a nasal swab sample, sometimes an oral pharyngeal sample or a saliva sample. Uh, for these particular, for a envelope virus, it's actually very easy to lyse that virus, 
literally with just heat. You can take that sample, put it into a PCR reaction, and it, it generally will amplify perfectly fine, particularly a nasal swab sample because there aren't any inherent inhibitors of PCR in that nasal pharyngeal passageway. Uh, in contrast, if you go to other sample types, sometimes, depending on what you've eaten recently or drunk recently, the saliva can contain inhibitors. Likewise, if you go to other sample types like urine, uh, a fecal sample, or a blood sample, those certainly have inhibitors to PCR. And so the sample prep process is very, very important if you want to have a technology that is good above and beyond doing just you know, enveloped viral detection of the nasal pharyngeal passageway. And so our particular system is designed, if you will, to be more of a workhorse where it can handle samples that are complicated samples, like your urine sample, your fecal samples, your, your blood samples, et cetera, because we go through a rigorous sample prep process that removes the inhibitors of PCR. What about um, possible contaminants, other genetic material from other organisms? So the viruses, et cetera. Right. And so this gets down into the chemistry, which is important. And so I've often told people that designing a PCR test for the novice molecular biologist is relatively easy, but designing a good one is very challenging and takes a lot of validation work. Um, and so you talk about, you know, we'll call it either host genetic material or background genetic material that might confound the results. And so when you design a PCR test, what we're doing here is PCR has different components that make the test very specific to the target of interest. And the reason this is possible is because the elements of PCR are specifically designed to only amplify the genetic target of interest. And the background genetic material in the sample should not be amplified, thereby creating a false positive result if the design of the PCR components is good. And so what we normally do is we do what's called an in silico design, where first you compare the genome that you're, you're attempting to detect and say it's either E. coli or coronavirus. You compare the genetic sequence of that pathogen, and then you compare that sequence to the host genome that you're, you're looking at, whether it's a human, you're looking at the human genome, and there are three billion bases in the human genome. Likewise, we're in the companion animal diagnostic space right now. Uh, you would look at the genetic code of a dog or a cat. And what you're looking for is to make sure that when you design your PCR test, that it will only amplify the pathogen genetic code and not the background genetic code, whether it's human, dog, or cat, or what, what have you. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. How much of the um, of an organism's genes do you need to um, use as a test template 
Great and question. Do the genes have to be in order? And is no, there it's... a trade off between using more and more of it and less false positive with other problems? Like, what are some of the design elements that are critical to understand? So, yeah, uh, great question. Great technical question. And, and so, ideally, what we look to do is target very unique regions of the particular target of interest. Again, whether it's a pathogen or whether you're maybe even looking for a cancer mutation. Because a lot of these ailments we're talking about have a specific genetic fingerprint, if you will, that you're looking to detect. And so the size does make a difference. And so when you are doing PCR, if you imagine, we'll say, for instance, the human genome, you know, we, we have, you know, 23 sets of chromosomes. Each chromosome is megabases in, in length. And when we go to actually do megabases, you know, you know, be millions of bases in length, when we go to do amplification, we're not amplifying the entire genome. What we're doing is we're targeting a very, very specific, very small region of the genome. And I think here it's important to understand that when you're doing PCR, it's targeted. Often you're looking for a unique genetic signature that is less than 100 base pairs in length. That is ideal because you can amplify that very quickly. You don't need to have long cycling times. This is in contrast to say next generation sequencing, which is something that is commonly done right now for a lot of the novel coronavirus strains, where say you do a PCR test and it fails to detect a pathogen and you have a negative result. And now the question is, okay, you know, was it a false negative because maybe there's an inhibitor there and the PCR just failed? But if your positive control works and the test still fails, now the question is, okay, was there a genetic variation that caused the actual PCR assay to fail. In that case, often what's at least recommended is going to next generation sequencing where you sequence the entire sample. So not just a 100 base pairs of amplification. What you're actually doing is you're reading uh, the entire genome to figure out de novo what's actually in there. And that allows you to do you know, new viral discovery and things of that nature. But the problem with next generation sequencing is it's much more technical. It's more expensive, and it's a much longer turnaround time. And so sort of bringing it back to what LexGene does, you know, we focus on fast, ease of use, low cost, something that can be automated and put into a clinic or, or, or some other practice to, to do high-quality diagnostics in a short time frame. Is the background technology this P PCR or RT-PCR, or are you doing more the next-gen sequencing but trying to right. do it in a more efficient way? So we are doing, well, I wouldn't say next generation sequencing is more efficient. It's just a different tool used in the diagnosis you know, landscape. What we use is, you know, sort of back to the two gold standards I mentioned. We'll get sort of technical here. You know, on the sample prep side, we you know, do mechanical lysis, chemical lysis, followed by solid phase extraction uh, and purification on a silicon membrane. That's for sample prep, and that's really considered a gold standard. Uh, based off of the boom patents, you know, I think back in the 1980s. I can't remember exactly when they were filed. On the application side, we do real-time PCR, often referred to as TACMAN PCR, where there are fluorescent probes, which add a, a second, uh, a, another layer of specificity, and also allows for more effective multiplexing. Multiplexing is just a term used to describe when you're looking for more than one genetic target in a single reaction. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And this is important for a lot of disease states 
we'll go to respiratory illnesses. You know, we have the coronavirus pandemic, but what about flu? What about RSV? What about adenovirus? And so the ability to look for many different targets at once is advantageous. And that's why we, uh, with our particular technology, we do a highly multiplex, you know, real-time PCR reaction. And right now we can do up to 27 different unique targets at once. So I haven't heard of that at all. I thought it was just one target. And all anyone ever talked about was, uh, you know, coronavirus. So you're, how long so it's uh, available clinically where you have this multiplex test, you could find 27 different pathogens? So right now we are commercially available in what we consider, we call the research use only market, the RUO market. And so we are selling into veterinary diagnostics, excuse me, into veterinary hospitals. We're also selling to biopharma. We're looking to do contamination testing. Now in regards to human clinical, because, you know, our system Another way to describe our system is a syndromic testing platform. Syndromes can be caused by a lot of different ailments. And the value of highly multiplex testing is you're much more likely to get an informative answer when you run the test rather than, say, a coronavirus-only test, which would lead a negative result for somebody who's infected with flu. And flu in itself is a dangerous pathogen, uh, likewise RSV. And so in order to practice, uh, or I should say, market and sell into human clinical diagnostics, you need to go through the FDA. And the FDA is obviously a regulatory uh, body, which makes sure, uh, as to the best of their ability, that the technology being used uh, has been thoroughly vetted and does as promised. And so any company like ours, quick background, Lexigene, you know, we were founded a little bit less than five years ago. You know, Developing and launching a product certainly takes time. Going to the FDA also takes time. And so it's often good to sort of, if you will, uh, get some sales uh, and, and user, a user base in another market before going to human clinical because the human clinical is a regulated market and it can take a, long, a longer time than you'd hope to go through the FDA to make sure that you meet all the requirements. So, okay, um, your multiplex tests, again, it's for research use only. How long and how much effort is it going to take to bridge it to uh, regular clinical use? Right, and so, I mean, I sort of want to provide a little more color on research use only. And so we're selling right now into veterinary diagnostics, although it sort of has the research use only label to it. In veterinary diagnostics, they don't need an FDA-approved device to use it. And so they are using it for clinical medicine in the veterinary space. And so, you know, as we speak today, you know, right now, veterinarians are using our system to screen samples taken largely from companion animals to help uh, do what we call evidence-based treatment. And so right now in the clinic, you know, what's uh, uh, remarkably surprising is all too often there will be um, what we call empiric diagnosis followed by empiric treatment. Empiric just means the clinician, in this case the veterinarian, is using their their expertise, their history of, of treating animals to make a best educated guess as to what's causing the animal's uh, ailment. And based on that, they then guess on how best to treat it. Uh, I think guess might be, you know, rub some veterinarians the wrong way, but that truly is just an educated guess. And so what our company is all about is saying, hey, listen, you know, right now, antimicrobial resistance is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And what we need to do to get on top of this is to diagnose first, first confirm there's an infection there that needs to be treated. And then second, look at the genetic makeup of that infection 
to determine whether or not there are any antimicrobial resistance factors that need to be taken into account before you prescribe. Right now, we're unfortunately in a situation where, uh, because of empiric treatment and overall abuse of using antibiotics in, in both human and clinical medicine, but also in animal feed, we're providing tremendous selective pressure for the microbial world to evolve and adapt and start developing resistance mechanisms. And as such, we're getting the emergence of these superbugs. And if you read the CDC report, they're projecting right now that by the year 2050, which is you know less than 30 years away, I mean, this is you know not too far distant future, that uh, antimicrobial resistant pathogens will kill over 10 million people per year. Uh, to put that into context, if you look at the coronavirus pandemic of 2020, and obviously it's still going on in 2021, but in 2020, if you break it down on a per year basis, it killed you know just over 3 million people. So what they're predicting is if we don't start getting a handle of antimicrobial resistance, we're going to have events three times worse than last year, every single year due to antimicrobial resistance. And so what Lexgene is all about is trying to get a handle on this and trying to convince clinicians, both in the veterinary and human side, to diagnose first and prescribe only what is necessary and no more. Because there's a lot of a lot of times you'll get a bacterial infection that will be treated with a first-line antibiotic, but veterinarians and likewise clinicians are prescribing these really broad-spectrum drugs, which are higher-tier drugs, many of which are reserved for really only serious human clinical disease, but they're being used more and more and more, and as a result, the microbial world's adapting, and these infections are becoming harder and harder to treat, and so the idea of you know having a, you know, skinning your knee and then all of a sudden being almost in a life-threatening situation certainly happens on occasion. And the sad thing is, is if we don't get a better handle on this, it will become a more and more of a common thing where we have very serious illness from things which in the past were very easily treated because we really lack the new drugs to effectively treat these uh, really drug-resistant pathogens. I thought there was unfortunately very little money in new antimicrobial substances because they're not given to the patient for the rest of their life. And I so, guess the approval yeah. process is so expensive, it's kind of squeezing, I would guess, uh, innovation and ability to come out with more antibiotics. You're absolutely right. So if you look at, again, some of the CDC reports, in the last 30 years, there have been no new classes of antibiotics developed and approved by the FDA. So none in the past 30 years. And if you think about the amount of advancement that's happened in medicine in 30 years, it's really remarkable. But nonetheless, we've run out of, I would say, easy targets for killing microbes. And as these microbes develop resistance to all of our drugs, you know, we're out of luck. And you're right that the, the pharmaceutical industry really needs to be financially incentivized to develop these drugs because it costs uh, with like $2 billion or whatever to get a new drug through the market. And the actual amount of money they can charge to treat a, a resistant infection isn't all that much in comparison to say cancer or a drug that's needed on a day-to-day -day basis, like a cholesterol drug or, or what have you. And so right now the government is trying to incentivize the um, pharmaceutical company to explore and develop new classes. But the reality is, is, once the lower hanging fruit has all been picked, 
you know, these higher level targets are just really hard to develop. And what would have been like a $2 billion in a process to create a new drug might be something which is untenable. And even if you spend $10 billion, you're not going to solve it. And so that brings us back to, okay, how do we get ourselves out of this predicament? And you get yourself out of the predicament by, you know, being better stewards of antibiotic usage, using it only when needed, you know, getting it out of our animal feed, you know, only prescribing when you have genetic evidence that there's one, an infection present, and two, there's resistance, therefore you need to prescribe a different type of antibiotic than you normally would. But if you do those things, what ends up happening is the microbial world, if you take away the selective pressure, this goes back to Darwin, you know, you take away the selective pressure and microbes only sort of hold on to the genes that they need. And if they don't need these genes, that can further resistance to a therapy, they end up almost, you know, booting them out of their genome and all of a sudden they become sensitive to the therapy again. And so we can get ourselves out of this predicament, but we have to collectively on the human side and on the veterinary and agricultural side, you know, be better at, you know, prescribing drugs and only do it when necessary. When you were talking about the price to introduce a new antibiotic, you said the 2 billion. I mean, is that multiplied also by the failure rate? And by the ones that don't work and all that stuff and to bring it up to, you know, what if it's, I mean, I heard 90 some odd percent of the new drug candidates fail. So if we multiply that 2 billion, assuming that that's the cost for a success pathway times all the failure rates, I mean, it could be a hundred billion. I mean, do you, do you know what the real numbers would be? No, I, I, you know, I'm not as, you know, versed on the pharmaceutical side as I am the diagnostic side. And so I don't want to speak out, out of, out of line here because I don't know exactly. I just heard the number that two billion to bring a new drug to market. Mm. And you're right, that's probably a successful one. Uh, to go through all of the failures, you know, certainly it's a lot of sunk money for companies and they don't want to invest, you know, tens of billions of dollars in something which isn't going to be successful in, in bringing revenue. So your goal is to make more accurate testing, more widespread, you know, well, inclusive of dozens and dozens of pathogens. So at least when there's a choice, let's say in hospital or in clinic, do we give this person antibiotics and which ones, or do we do anything at all? Your test in the future should be able to help whittle this down a lot faster and a lot more, a lot better, it sounds like. Right. And to give you sort of a, an example, urinary tract infections are notoriously difficult to diagnose, particularly in the companion. I mean, obviously our dogs and our cats don't talk to us, right? Um, and so the reason why it's so difficult to diagnose is your dog or your cat will, will pee on the rug or have blood in the urine or, or, or squeal when urinating. There are many reasons that those signs and symptoms might appear. I mean, there's bladder cancer, there's, you know, general incontinence, there's diabetes, there's Cushing's disease, et cetera. And so if you look at all of the samples suspected of being a urinary tract infection that are treated with drugs, the reality is, is about 25% are actually caused by an infection. Because we're so massively treating uh, animals, and the same is true here on the human side, but to a lesser extent because humans can actually talk, and we can get into sort of urinary tract infections in assisted living facilities and elderly facilities. But um, on the veterinary side, you know, our current system right now screens for 10 different common pathogens that can cause you know, urinary tract infections covering over 95% of all cases. Plus, we have effectively 35 different tests that look for four 
classes of antimicrobials. And I say classes because class, there can be multiple drugs in a single class. And these are all first line defenses. And so our goal is, you know, within two hours, you're able to tell the pet owner, and obviously if we were through the FDA, the human, you know, one, what's causing your infection, not just, okay, you have an infection, but no, you have E. coli, you have Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, et cetera. And two, you know, okay, we've determined that you, your infection is going to be resistant to this drug. And as such, we're going to prescribe a different drug that's very, very targeted. It's going to allow you to resolve the infection quickly. Because all too often, with empiric diagnosis and treatment, the, the clinician, unfortunately, is wrong. And that patient will come back and have complications. And we all know that complications cost more money. But it's not just about money. It's about increased morbidity and mortality. And so if you don't get the handle on an infection and do it right, what will end up happening is, is like very simple urinary tract infection. It might go up and cause a kidney infection, and if your kidneys get damaged to too high of a degree, next thing you know that you, you be, want to be on dialysis, but they don't put pets on dialysis. And, and so, you know, there there are certain things that you know are complicated. Well, even even so, dialysis is incredibly invasive and time-consuming, and it also portends that you're not going to last too long. So exactly. better never to get there if possible. Exactly. And, and so, and again, by, by practicing what we call evidence-based you know, medical care, where you, and again, it all comes down to time, right? Because I think it's important to recognize what is available right now in the veterinary space. And so one of the things that surprised me about the veterinary space is the long turnaround time and the lack of technology for doing exactly what we do. Right now, the reason why veterinarians are empirically uh, diagnosing and prescribing is because of the lack of tech. They don't have the technology available to allow them to very quickly inside the clinic make a determination. The tools available to them are either, you know, so long and slow, like right now, if you send a sample off for culture, Normally, in pre-pandemic times, it was like a five-day turnaround time to get the results back, but five days is an awful long time. In the pandemic right now, we're hearing from veterinarians the turnaround time is 10 days or even two weeks, which, you know, is just way too long. And so they need time, time, time is such a value prop to be able to get that informed, evidence-based report to guide your treatment is so critically important on both the animal side as well as the human side. And I, I think in the future of medicine, what we certainly should be seeing is much more common point of care genetic testing. I know we're all sort of familiar with coronavirus. You can go down and drop off a sample, get a relatively rapid test. But I certainly hope in the future that, you know, advances like lectogene system are going to be more commonly used. And so the idea of um, going down to get a genetic test is going to be more commonly accepted and known in, in practice. And I guess with your technology, again, there'll be more pathogens uh, discoverable at one time and then better application of antibiotics or other you know, drugs because you'll know more of the landscape of what's going on inside that creature, that person. You're absolutely right. And this is why you, the high multiplex is critically important. Um, there are so many tests right now. And, and again, I'm sort of weaving in. Human and, human and veterinary medicine here, so my apologies, but, you know, the FDA recently, um, excuse me, the CDC recently sort of pulled back their coronavirus-only test, and the reason why they pulled that back is because they had a coronavirus flu test that was now at least duplexing, you know, looking for two pathogens, 
and they want to encourage reference labs to start at least looking for flu and coronavirus at the same time, because again, the larger the multiplex, the greater the likelihood of having an informative result, because there are so many different types of microbes out there. They're all different. You have to have a specific test for each one. If you're not screening for it, you're not going to know whether it's there or not if the result comes back negative. And so the fact that we can do, you know, 27 at once is a huge, massive advantage, you know, great for the company and the technology and the end users ultimately benefit from that. Can you say anything about the mixture of the 27 or the 21? Are they half virus, half bacteria, or is there, you know, like how expansive is this or are there different mixes if someone's suspected of having a bacterial infection, do they then use a test that only looks at bacteria, but it can look at, you know, 46 of them instead of a mixture of virus and bacteria and only gets like seven of each, let's say? Great question here. And so this becomes a balance between cost and, and prevalence. And so if you look at different syndromes, we'll take respiratory viruses, for example, there's like about 20 common pathogens that can cause respiratory illness. And so you create a panel around those 20. There is some, but not complete overlap with say, well, the respiratory infections are very, very different from say the urinary tract infections. And so you end up developing panels for a particular uh, syndrome, whether it's a respiratory, gastrointestinal, uh, skin and soft tissue, et cetera. And so you end up breaking up the panels to suit the sample being processed. So you don't take a test, which should say be a $50 test and turn it into a $200 test. Um, because the more you look for, generally the more expensive the test. And so as a supplier of these tests, we effectively look to detect 95% or greater of the usual suspects that cause a particular illness. And so right now, our current offering looks for, you know, as I said, 10 of the most common bacteria and 35 different markers looking for antimicrobial resistance. And this is used for, you know, urinary tract infections, skin soft tissue infections, uh, wound infections, ear infections, things that are commonly caused by bacteria. If you go now more into the respiratory side, you can have many more viruses in that panel, but you still have some bacteria. And so you end up having a little bit more of a balance between viral targets and bacterial targets. So are you gonna end up with a suite of tests, again, that are tweaked more towards suspected bacterial causes versus viral versus other? Correct, correct. And so the idea is, is that the system accepts, accepts different panels for different types of syndromes that the clinician is interested in testing for. And it keeps, it's a directed panel. It keeps the cost of the test down to a reasonable level. So that you're not overly paying, like, and for example, you know, earlier we talked about next generation sequencing. You know, next generation sequencing is expensive if you're just running one sample. I mean, you can spend a thousand dollars on doing next generation sequencing. Um, and so, because that's looking for absolutely everything, right? And so, you don't care if it's a the host genome, a fungus, a bacteria, a virus. You're just going to look at everything. But obviously, that's not a tenable price, and so nor is the time to result uh, tenable. And so. As a result, you end up going towards technologies like PCR, which are very targeted, very directed, very low cost, or at least cost acceptable, uh, and get the job done in a timely manner. Well, very good. Uh, Jack, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, Lexagene and, uh, and your work? Where can they go? 
Yes. Yeah, so, so obviously, uh, Lexagene.com. And if they have any questions regarding the company, uh, info at Lexagene.com. And just to spell it out, it's L-E-X-A-G-E-N-E.com. And, you know, happy to answer any follow-on questions your listeners might have. Well, excellent. I can see, you know, the use and the utility of what you guys are doing. So hopefully it'll uh, reach market, reach clinic in the next few years and, uh, you know, be in use. So thank you for what you do and for coming on the podcast. Hey, my pleasure. And thanks for having me. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.